Welcome to Gender Meowster Podcast Network. Genderful is a talk show featuring non-binary and trans folks discussing various topics and special interests. We kindly remind our listeners that no person is a monolith of identities. All opinions are the speaker's own. This show airs live on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash gender meowster and VODs with show notes can also be found on YouTube. Content warnings for this episode include discussions of contemporary American politics, laws, transphobia, and oppression. Welcome to Gender Meowster Podcast Network. Genderful is a talk show featuring non-binary and trans folks discussing various topics and special interests. We kindly remind our listeners that no person is a monolith of identities. All opinions are the speaker's own. This show airs live on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash gender meowster and VODs with show notes can also be found on YouTube. So hi, everyone. I'm Gender Meester. I use they, them pronouns, and I will let my wonderful guest introduce himself. Hi, I'm Spencer Bergstead. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm happy to be here. I'm so happy you're here, Spencer. I um, I got to catch your episode on the Stealth Transmasculine podcast, and it was uh-huh. so fun to get to hear you chat with uh, Kai and Jackal. They're so cool. Yeah, yeah I've, known, <laughs> I've known Kai for gosh 25 years i think yeah that's so rad i love it oh my gosh that's so fun um it's it's cool to see how like at least uh trans guys of generations before me have have been in community and found each other and it's been yeah, so interesting you know, to see it, what those experiences have been like I think the, you know, there's sort of this universal truth for those of us that transitioned in kind of the late 80s to early to mid 90s in that the internet didn't really exist for us. You know, there was AOL for those of us that had it. Um, And yet we still managed to find one another. And, you know, the joke used to be, oh, hey, do you know Steve? Are you talking about Steve or Steven? I know both of them. (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, and and basically you did know every other guy. Yeah. Um, once you met one person, then they introduced you to the couple of people that they knew. And, you know, pretty soon you had sort of a, a network of other trans men all around the world um, who all knew each other. Yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think I remember hearing in in the Stealth podcast uh, about how you'd find like this very esoteric ad in the back of a magazine or a thing, and you'd write in and hope it wasn't a scam and like get connected. <laughs> yeah, so FTM International used to put these ads in the back of of various publications, and it was like send a dollar to FTM Inter- FTM International, and we'll send you a newsletter. Mm-hmm. And um, so you'd put a dollar bill in an envelope and send it off with your address. And then sure enough, you would get a newsletter and you get signed up for the newsletter and um, got all sorts of interesting articles from folks and got connected to even more people um, simply by taking a chance on responding to an ad. Yeah. 
it's so it's so like cool that that worked out and i i appreciate that they are like okay if you're gonna troll us you're gonna at least give us a dollar right. <laughs> exactly exactly although that's, you know honestly they didn't get trolled that much that's good i think you know uh to some extent the the days before we were so connected 24 7 365 were in some ways safer uh, than where we are now yeah yeah it was it was you had to try harder to gang up on people i guess <laughs> try harder to physically that, be sure. in the same place <laughs> yeah well definitely try harder to gang up on people but also i think it you know it just wasn't worth it for trolls to spend the time and effort to try to find us yeah. um, it was more about us finding one another and I mean, anybody who has a background in queer community certainly understands sort of that underground network of finding one another, um, you know, regardless of how you identify as queer. I mean, as somebody who identified as queer, who identifies as a Leatherman uh, and as a trans man, I had all kinds of different places where I needed to figure out where people were. Mm -hmm. and and how to find them and sometimes it was just a matter of you showed up at the pride event in any given year and just introduced yourself to people yeah well happy pride month happy pride month here let me wave something gay in the air <laughs> <laughs> as if the non-binary flag that is like the whole scene isn't enough we'll just add a little rainbow <laughs> there you go <laughs> so fun um well, Spencer, I'd love to hear more about just your your personal journey for a question or two before we dive into sure. sort of the po political stuff. Um, sure. What are some things that you can trace back to your youth that indicated you might be trans one day or what were sort of the, the early warning signs that you caught up to later in life? Well, I, you know, I think for me, it started really early. I I remember certainly being four or five years old and not at all identifying with being a girl. Mm -hmm. um, my best friend, Mike, lived across the street and he and I did everything together. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I remember literally praying at night to wake up with a different body. And then of course that didn't happen. By the time I got to be probably 11-ish, I want to say. Um, we had moved to Minnesota, and I remember my mom taking me to the pediatrician mm -hmm. and then leaving me in the room with him, which she had never done before, which I thought was odd. And then I remember him asking me if I wanted to be a boy. And something in my... Uh, self-preservation toolkit said lie through your teeth um, so I lied and I said no um, somehow I knew that something bad would come of me being honest about it mm -hmm. and I, you know for me I you know I'm 59 years old so my experience is, is definitely based in being a child of the 60s and 70s so my first exposure to trans people 
that I am conscious of was Renee Richards in the early 70s. I was a huge tennis fan Mm -hmm. and followed the women's tour. And at the time, um, Dr. Richards was trying to win her way onto being able to participate on the women's tour. Mm -hmm. And so that was my first exposure to trans people at all. And like much of the narrative that we still see today, the focus is almost exclusively on trans women and very little commentary, if any, about trans men or trans masculine people. So it didn't seem like an attainable goal for me. Um, And, you know, so I continued to just be myself, which was a very masculine presenting person. I was very clear that I was attracted to girls Um, that didn't fly well in small town, Minnesota in the mid seventies. But I had my best friend who was also a dyke. Uh, And then we had one other friend who was, with us for two years and then her family moved away. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and we had some support through some of our teachers, which was instrumental, I think, in our well being. Yeah, um, that's awesome. Yeah, we were really, really fortunate in that um, to have teachers who were queer, quietly so, mm-hmm. um, but who looked out for us. Um, and then, you know, so to me, I just sort of defaulted to, well, I guess what's available to me is to live as a butch dyke. That's Mm -hmm. what's available. And it wasn't until I was in my late twenties that I met my first trans man. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it's, you know, it was like the skies opened, um, you know, angel saying kind of thing. It's like, oh, well, oh, that's, oh, it's possible. Oh, oh, oh. it's possible. Ooh. Oh. Um, <laughs> and then me being me, I researched the hell out of like how to access the resources that I would need to access in order to make that a reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the rest is history. Yeah, I love that. Um, the chat says, I don't have any questions so far, but that is a glorious beard, sir. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Do you have any beard care tips just for a yeah. fluffy question? <laughs> sure. Um, well, so first of all, um, you know, it's also, it goes nice. down further. Um, it, it grew really long during the pandemic. I started mm-hmm. the pandemic at about here. So mm-hmm. all of that is new. Nice. Um, so a couple of things. One, don't use soap uh, to wash your face. Use mm-hmm. a good face wash, mm-hmm. um, which will also help with that dryness and oiliness issue. Okay. Um, there's a couple of really good products out there. If you can find things with tea tree oil in them, those are really helpful. Um, I happen to use Kiehl's. Um, facial fuel, um, which uh, I use that to wash my bald head and my face and my beard. Um, Lots of people will tell you don't wash your beard every day. I wash my beard every day. Um, 
largely pandemic related to wash it every day. Uh, I want to get all those pesky germs off if I've been out in the world. Um, and then it's a matter of what product to use. So I use a combination of beard balm and beard oil. And then I use mustache wax. I don't have any in today, but um, I do use mustache wax. Um, depending on how coarse your beard is will depend on how strong of a hold you need from the mustache wax. There's different, there's hundreds of choices, um, but try to find one that has an appropriate amount of hold for the wiriness and stubbornness of your facial hair. If you want to do things like get it to, you know, do this sort of motion with your mustache, mm -hmm really literally have to train the hair to do it so it's a lot of fussing with your face um and getting a little mustache comb combing it out nice um and then with the beard what i do is i alternate between using the beard balm and the beard oil um they do somewhat different things the beard balm is like a beeswax based balm most of the time you just use a little bit and then you rub it into the beard. Um, that does a couple of things for you. One, it moisturizes your face because your skin underneath your beard is gonna get really dry. So the beard balm and the beard oil help to keep your face moisturized. Um, and then it also helps to give you more shape and body to the beard. Mm -hmm. um, and then the oil I use typically every other day. And then I braid my beard um, just to keep it softer. Um, you know, the texture of my beard has changed a lot over time. Uh, the more gray and white it has become, the coarser it's gotten. And so beard care has changed a little bit over the, the past, I'm trying to think of when it was mostly red was last time was probably about five or six years ago that it was mostly red uh, and the texture was very different then it was a lot softer than it is now mm -hmm. but the beard oil helps to keep it pretty soft yeah that's so awesome um Miramie's saying in the chat it never occurred to me that beard care products are also moisturizers that's neat to know yeah yeah that's so great well I took copious notes so thank you for your helpful tips um so so you went from being a person meeting your first transmasculine person to the glorious being you are today how has your relationship to gender evolved over time like like what what happened well i think for me part of what happened is just finding uh you know, the, the appropriate balance for me and what fit for me. Part of what's to me interesting about sort of my journey is that as I got more and more invested in the weather community, the women's community really was not the place for me. I didn't find a lot of comfort there, but the men's community was very welcoming to me even before I transitioned hmm. um, and saw me for who I was. And hmm. so for many years prior to transition, I was used to being called sir. Hmm. 
and um, it was a really comfortable place for me. And so when I came to the point in time where I said, okay, this is, this is the point in time where I'm going to move forward with making legal and physical changes. Again, the men's community was very welcoming to me, whereas the women's community was, hmm, how should I put it, um, hostile. Mm-hmm. Hostile is a good word. Um, I was uh, labeled a gender betrayer, uh, that I was uh, copping out, that I was taking the easy way out instead of living life as a butch dyke, I was, was um, taking an easier path, um, which, you know, is really pretty hysterical to say, because uh, it's definitely not an easier path by any stretch. Um, it's a different path, but it's not any, any harder or, uh, or less hard uh, than living as a butch dyke. Yeah. Um, and having, having had the experience of both, um, I can say one is not easier than the other. Yeah. So you encountered some of the trans-exclusionary radical feminist uh, language, perhaps. Well, really not so much that. I think it was more, you know, amongst the the women's community, particularly lesbian community, there was this sense of of seeing many butches transitioning and so this sense of loss yeah um on the one hand you know and it's funny to me that the same arguments about oh we're losing all the butches to transition is still being made nearly 30 years after i transitioned yeah i had a lover who used that line on me once and it was before i realized how trans i was like i was using they them pronouns but i hadn't even considered hrt Mm -hmm. and you know if for i don't know i feel like if the cis lesbians who are mourning all these butches that are leaving viewed trans trans women as women Mm -hmm. like I have a wife who's a trans woman. She's very butch. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And she likes it that way. She doesn't need to yeah. be all super high femme. Like, right. you know, when when something breaks in the house, she's the one with the know-how to fix it, not me. <laughs> and so, I don't know. There's, I feel like there's just as many, like, uh, butch lesbians that are transbians that are entering the lesbian right. sphere as like, there are a, like cis zero. butch lesbians yeah. leaving and yeah it is a net zero so it's just like 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 hearing that grief piece about oh like you're so special you're you're butch but you're still a woman um is sort of like this for me it was like this grasping like please don't leave right and it was like but i need to be who i am yeah, and, and you know, it took like an extra year to start HRT because of the fear and shame and guilt that was sort of infused in me by that lover that said that to me. Yeah, and I think that happens for a lot of guys. Yeah, um, I know a lot of guys that have put off transition because they were in a relationship with somebody who was desperately uncomfortable with them transitioning. Yeah, and you know, it's only because. Well, not only because, but partially because that person then is not living their authentic life that they're 
relationship is bound to fall apart. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, and, and when you're preventing somebody from living authentically, mm-hmm. I think that is a problem. And for me, as a feminist, I always thought feminism was, you know, living your most authentic life and being as self-actualized as possible, whatever that may be. And so it was really confusing to me to have women then saying I wasn't being a good feminist anymore mm-hmm. um, was very disconcerting. Yeah. But the other piece of it that I think is uh, is telling is how many of the folks that were bemoaning the loss of butches were also struggling with the fact that they're really attracted to trans men. Yeah. And what did that mean about their concept of sexual orientation identity for themselves? Yeah, I can I can tell you my sexual identity has gone through quite a journey since I started HRT specifically. Like, I'm pretty sure at this point I've been all the letters, <laughs> collecting all of them. <laughs> I think that's pretty universally true. <laughs> it's like. Wow. Okay. (laughs) But it's like, it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm making peace with it. It's a journey, but it's just like, it's like sexuality becomes such a less important piece once trans is in there for me, at least like, like lesbian used to be like the strong, that was like the identity that I was very committed to. And now that I'm like non-binary, I'm like, Wow, I some days I'm lesbian, some days I'm gay, some days I'm some other pansexual, I don't know. And it's it's very more fluid than it used to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's I think that's pretty universally true for most people that are willing to do some self-examination. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think most people are probably way more fluid around their sexuality than they give themselves credit for. Mm-hmm. Yeah or then society allows them to explore. Right. Yeah. Speaking of exploring, uh, so trans politics and trans law and stuff, um, can you tell us a bit about your your background and um, like why you are so involved with these types of things? How did you how sure. did you get to that part of your journey? So, I when I was in college, uh, in the early 80s, or no, well, yeah, early 80s, um, I got involved with just queer politics in general through a student association at the University of Washington. And then um, I went to law school, also at the UW. And I remember the very first day of orientation at law school sitting in this giant lecture hall and looking around and uh, there were a whole bunch of us who were scoping one another out and we all met out on the lawn at lunchtime. Um, So it was like spot the other queers and let's all come together. Um, And we pretty rapidly decided that one of the things we wanted to do was create a, a queer student group at the law school, which had never existed before. And this is 1985. Um, 
the world was a very different place in 1985 than it is today. Mm -hmm. uh, and that really started me on a road of queer activism. Um, so through my experience with that in law school, which that student organization then sprouted another student organization at the other local law school, which then created a queer bar association wow. uh, for King County, which then later became a statewide uh, organization that's under the auspices of the bar association. All of that flowed from my desire to use the tools that I was getting as a lawyer, really for my own benefit. Um, you know, I think lots of people will tell you the personal is political. Yeah. And I think most of us who do political activism and political advocacy work do so because we have a deep-seated need to do something for ourselves that we want our lives to be improved or we want the lives of someone that's really close to us to be improved in some way. Mm -hmm. So that really started me down that path. And then shortly after I got out of law school, I was on various and sundry boards for a variety of nonprofits in Seattle. And then in 1989, I was appointed by the then mayor of Seattle to a brand new uh, task force, which was the Mayor's Gay and Lesbian Task Force. And then that later became a city commission and the name of it has evolved over the years as it's gone from being alphabet focused to now it's, I think, just the Commission on Sexual Minorities. Um, so that political advocacy work was something that I was doing basically from the point that I started law school forward. That's so cool that you've been involved with all these different organizations through the years. Um, if I remember correctly, at this point, you are mostly an activist and not so much doing law. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not practicing law anymore. I, um, there's a variety of reasons for that, but part of it is just after 28 years, I kind of reached a point where it wasn't fun for me anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, I graduated law school in 1988. And at that time, I couldn't get a job. There was nowhere that was going to hire me. Mm -hmm. um, I did. A, I remember I, did, I participated in a documentary that they did about uh, women judges in Washington State um, on the hundredth anniversary of the first woman judge in the mm -hmm. state. And the interviewer asked me what I you know, what my perceptions of the legal profession were at that time. And I said, well, you know, here's the thing. The law is still a conservative profession and they want Ken and Barbie and I'm more Ken than Barbie. So my chances are not good. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, that, that turned out to be true. I interviewed with the same number of firms that my cohort did. They got jobs. I didn't. Hmm. Um, so I ended up striking out in a solo practice right out of law school, which is uh, both remarkable and frightening. Uh, <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds challenging. Yeah. But if that was, um, it sounds like that was your only option to practice laws, like yeah. start your own deal. That, that was really my only option at that point. Yeah. And um, my law practice really had very little to do with, um, with trans anything. It did have something to do with LGBTQ legal issues as a whole in that my practice in part focused on estate planning and probate. Um, and, and I still am a huge, uh, per, you know, person for talking about the need to do your estate planning and especially for trans people in this day and age, please get a will, get powers of attorney, get medical directives done. Um, make sure that, that, you're putting people in power over you uh, or your estate that you trust and that you know are going to respect your identity. Yeah. There's nothing worse to me than seeing a trans person be erased by their family of origin yeah. because they become incompetent or incapacitated or they die. Mm -hmm. And it happens over and over and over again. Yeah. And there's ways to prevent it but you have to be proactive about doing it. Yeah. Is there any sort of regional or national uh, listing of queer and trans lawyers that do that type of estate planning? Like you are not doing it anymore. So right. we can rush and knock on your door and say, can you do our estate planning? Um, yeah. So if someone's looking for that type of help, is there any sort of resources we could point people at? Um, definitely. You can look at the, LGBTQ Bar Association. Um, they have a directory of members uh, and it's a nationwide organization. Um, most states will have some sort of directory of LGBTQ lawyers, um, whether that's through a business association or because there's a bar association. Um, and you can certainly find folks that way. Awesome. Yeah, it looks like maybe qlaw.org is a good website for that. Yeah, so qlaw is, is um, based here in the state of Washington. Um, and you can probably find other resources through their website. But mm -hmm. certainly the LB, sorry, LGBTQ Bar Association um, is uh, a great place to start. Awesome. Um, so we're starting to get specific questions from folks in the chat. Um, okay. So so just for context for people listening to this in the future, it's currently summer of 2022. So we're talking about political events that are happening now. If it's been a year or two, who knows what happened? <laughs> we don't know. Hey. You do. We don't. Um, so that's that's sort of what we're we're talking about right now. So. Um, my my first is sort of a blanket question of what is the current political landscape that trans people face in the United States in summer 2022? Well, the overall political landscape is horrifying. Absolutely. At the moment. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I was telling a colleague of mine the other day, in 
nearly 40 years of activism as a queer person, I have never been more afraid than I am right now. And this is coming from somebody who was out at a time when being out was illegal in more than half of the country. Mm -hmm. Um, Where being out and kinky was against the law in all kinds of places. Um, And yet I never feared for my safety or my right to exist in the way that I do right now. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this year alone, we're in the first week of June, there's been over 300 bills brought that are anti-trans legislation in 30 states, many of which are getting passed and signed into law. Yeah, it's and it's happening at such a, like, stunning pace. Yeah. It's like every day, one or two or three or five new terrible things have happened. Yeah. it's It seems like it's a coordinated effort, like they planned it all, and so they're... Oh, like, I mean, it is, absolutely, it. it is absolutely planned. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, that we have to really be aware of is the linkage between anti-abortion attempts, mm-hmm. anti-trans legislation, things like uh, the variety of, of laws being passed, which are pro-child bride Ugh. in certain states, the anti-contraception um, bills that are being brought all of it you know what's the thing that links all of those things together is controlling people's bodies controlling people's bodies yeah and trans people are the low-hanging fruit politically to win that fight because if you can convince people that it's okay to control people's ability to access medical care, which is recognized by virtually every single medical association as being life-affirming care. If you can convince people that they shouldn't be able to access that kind of care, that if they are already receiving that kind of care, it needs to stop immediately. Mm-hmm. And that if they persist, that they'll be prosecuted. You're creating an atmosphere in which essentially the elimination of an entire population of people is deemed okay. Mm-hmm. And once you do that with one group of people, it becomes so much easier to do it with yet another group. Right. And ultimately, what the goal really is, you know, and the, the funny thing to me is like, at this point, the right is, is feeling so emboldened by everything that they're doing that they're just laying out their whole agenda for you right there. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you look at the, the leaked uh, opinion of Justice Alito in the challenge to Roe v. Wade, yeah, they talk about the need to supply people with white babies. 
that's their agenda. They want to force procreation in the way they want it to create more white babies. So, so how do you do that? Well, first you get rid of trans people because we screw up your narrative. Once you get rid of us, you can get rid of all of the other letters of the alphabet in the community. Mm-hmm. You indicate that you can't use contraception anymore. So now you're going to force women to get pregnant, essentially, mm-hmm. with no avenue of ending that pregnancy in a legal way. And when you then criminalize both being the, the person having the abortion and or the provider of said abortion services, you make it harder and harder and harder for folks to access that. Then you add on the ability for men to marry children who then they basically can imprison by raping that child, getting that child pregnant, and now that child is stuck. Mm-hmm. That's their goal. I'm not really sure to what end they think that is going to benefit them, but that is their goal, Mm -hmm. is the subjugation of women in particular. And, you know, historically, I think what we've seen is that trans people tend to be that low-hanging fruit that everybody's willing to jettison in favor of something else. Mm -hmm. We've seen it within queer politics in general. I mean, it's Bernard pretty consistent political maneuver on the part of LGBTQ activists Mm -hmm. to say, well, we want the Equality Act around work, but I mean, it's okay if you take out the trans people for now. We'll come back around to you later. And then they don't. And of course they're not going to come back around. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I mean, that was HRC's strategy for a long time Hmm. was we really want passage of this law protecting sexual orientation and employment, Mm -hmm. but it's okay. If you want to take the trans people out, we'll, we'll agree to that. If it advances the bill, of course it never advanced. So trying to jettison trans people didn't really work in the end, but the fact that they were willing to do it was really troublesome when your own community is saying, mm, you know, we, that's okay. We can get rid of you. Um, it's not a good feeling. And, you know, right now we've got so many of these bills being brought and so much discussion happening. I don't know about you, but I know for me and certainly for a lot of, of my friends, the psychological and emotional toll that it's taking just mm-hmm. to hear about this on a daily basis yeah. is, is, um, I mean, it's just overwhelming some days. It is. Yeah. For, for a while I had a friend who was covering news topics along these lines, um, on a Twitch stream mm-hmm. and he, he's a, cishet leftist ally of like the queer and trans communities and he was doing a really good job covering the news and part of why he would do that is he would read through all the stuff 
and then the rest of us who it impacts more like wouldn't go through that mental turmoil of having to sift through all of the bs to find the helpful pieces of information and even he like got burnt out and had to go back and get a job and like you know he wasn't making enough money doing it yeah so he had to go find work but it's um yeah it's it's really it's really stressful um you know i haven't seen any statistics on um you know self-harm and suicide and any of that sort of stuff for trans people like well, the Trevor Project, has done, year, but I bet it's gone up, I imagine. Yeah. So Trevor Project did um, some surveys earlier this year. And, you know, the numbers right now are that 42 percent of LGBTQ people in general have seriously considered suicide as an option. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about trans and non-binary people, that's up to 52 percent. Mm-hmm. You know, historically, we know that around 40-ish percent of trans people seriously consider suicide and or attempt. Uh, when you talk about trans masculine people, that number goes up way over 50%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's, I have seen people in, especially the states that are having more of these laws be passed, be of two minds. Um, some folks are like, we definitely need to stay and fight. Like, this mm-hmm. is wrong. We need to stay in voter conscience and fight this. And some people are like, no, heck this, I'm out. And they're moving to the friendlier, more trans-friendly states. Yeah. Um, it seems like that choice can be very personal. And, you know, do you have any things to think about or advice for people who are sort of weighing those options and trying to decide what to do? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I think it's... Uh it's very telling when you get activists who live in larger cities on either coast telling people who live in those middle states or those southern states well just move um, as if it's that easy for everybody to do that Um, you know they're not considering the financial costs Mm -hmm. they're not considering whether or not the people involved can find work someplace else um what other family members there are. I mean, there's lots of considerations that people have for why they live where they live. Mm -hmm. And um, so to me, it's a, it's not a very thought out um, commentary from some folks that just say, well, just move then. Well, that's not necessarily that easy to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially when you're, you know, say you're, you've got a family of six, you got two parents and you got four kids, mm-hmm. you're suddenly going to uproot everybody. Um, that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. Um, I think that there is a strong argument to be made that staying and fighting is probably the best thing for the long term success for progressive movement in this country. Mm-hmm. If everybody who votes blue or even purple leaves those states, then you've, you've literally just turned it over to the fascists at that point. Because that's basically where the Republican Party is these days. Yeah. 
I mean, the Republican Party of today is not the Republican Party that I grew up with. Right. This is not a group of people who they have. I mean, when you really look at it, they have no policy that they're pushing. They have mm -hmm. nothing. If you ask them, well, what are you for? Well, we, we're for limiting abortion and we're for getting, you know, killing off trans people. Um, we're for guns. But that's about it. Like, they don't really have any substantive policy positions at all. Right. Yeah. Um, so if you leave, then you're just abdicating those states to live in, in that kind of, of ultimately regime change, I guess. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, particularly when you're a parent, your job is to take care of your kids. Yeah. You know, I'm a parent. If I was in that position, if I needed, if, if my child was being um, targeted in the way that kids are being targeted in many of these states right now, I would be doing everything in my power to move someplace else because my job is to take care of my kid. Um, what impact that's going to have on folks in terms of, of uh, their livelihood or, or their lives going forward is hard to say, mm -hmm. but in any event, if they got to a place where those kids are going to be protected and have access to the resources that they need, mm -hmm then the likelihood that those kids are going to grow up and become really interesting and productive people in society is much, much higher. If they stay where they are, there's a at least 50-50 chance their child is going to die. Yeah, that's too high. Yeah, and that's not a risk I would take. Yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like um, the age of the gender diverse or queer person is a huge piece of the puzzle i think so i think yeah. you know depending on how old the person is uh you know how ingrained in their community community they are mm -hmm. um, for some folks if if they're living pretty stealth you know they might be safe mm -hmm. yeah um we have two different questions from the chat um so kari asks how would you suggest to help defend rights in places like Florida and other states that are passing oppressive laws? The first and best way is to look at two things. One is what are the local organizations that are in existence already that are fighting the good fight? So for example, in Florida, there's Equality Florida. So you can give them money, you can volunteer your time, you can um, find all sorts of ways to help support that organization. On a more national level, you have the ACLU, you have Lambda, and you have NCLR, which is the National Center for Lesbian Rights, all of whom engage in taking on litigation cases uh, in, in these states and are, are being quite successful. Um, and all of that costs money. Um, so at the very least, um, 
consider donating whatever you can or do a fundraiser for them if you can. Um, these folks are working really hard, <laughs> really hard. On a, on a really sort of micro level, um, look at what's going on in your own community and how you can be supportive of that. So uh, one of the things that has been really gratifying for me over the years is seeing how many more small local pride events there are. So right now is a great time to look around what communities around you are having pride events. Go and support those pride events. Um, there's a town just north of where I live. They had their very first pride event on Saturday. Um, there's another town to the east of me. Um, they're having their second ever pride event next weekend. Um, so there's lots so all, of all the city folk need to go to these little country pride events. As absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. If you live in a bigger city, get on the bus, <laughs> get on the bus, get on the train, do a get ride, there. whatever you need to do, but yeah. get there and be supportive. Yeah. Because part of, part of how we change hearts and minds is by normalizing. And I hate that word, but normalizing who we are for other people, right? One of the things that we know has worked strategically around queer rights in general is when we've had political campaigns that involve us going, and this is, you know, sort of pre-internet days, we would literally go door to door, knock on people's doors and introduce ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and for people that claim that they had never met an openly gay or lesbian bisexual or trans person to suddenly be confronted with now you've met one mm -hmm. it's a lot harder to hate when you're looking somebody in the face yeah it's a lot harder and part of why the internet i think spawns the kind of vitriol and hatred that it does is you're not actually face to face with anybody you're sitting looking at a screen and you have the protection of that screen and that keyboard and a sense of anonymity. So you can spew whatever hatred you want because it's not, you, you don't see the impact of that hatred on another person's face. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So absolutely get out to small prides and they're fun too. Yeah. Do you have like a, a favorite piece of pride swag that you've gotten this year? Um, so my biggest piece of pride swag for this year, well, there's two. Um, one, I did the totally corporate thing, uh, rainbow capitalism thing, but I bought um, <laughs> one of the shirts at Target, um, which is the Trixie and Katja um, tank top, because um, I'm a huge fan of Trixie Mattel and Katja. Um, and, um, you know, say what you will, Target has been a huge proponent for queer rights for a very long time. Um, they're one of the first um, major national corporations that made it very clear that trans people were welcome to use whatever bathroom they wanted to use. Um, and we're really public about it. And we're perfectly willing to say to their customer base, if you don't like it, don't shop here. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm happy to support that. Um, my other piece of good 
uh, pride swag this year is a t-shirt that says protect trans youth. Um, and then, and probably my favorite one is actually from, from, uh, Kai and Jackal at stealth because they sent me a stealth t-shirt for their podcast. So that's so awesome. I love that. (laughs) They're actually going to be on this show at the end of the month. Awesome. I'm so excited. We've been, I've been trying to book them for months and months and we finally found a time that works for all three of us. Cause I'm going to have both of them on together, which will be that's fantastic. Yeah. I'm looking Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually know a trans person who works at target and I was able to give some feedback to that person about one of the vendors that they chose for some of the products they offer. And they took that feedback back to, the powers that be and we'll see mm-hmm. we'll see what happens because it's like you know you picked an okay brand but here's how the problematic for trans masculine people right uh try again yeah. <laughs> like yeah. pick someone else maybe trans owned instead of only lesbian owned see how that goes for you yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. sadly it's a local company for me so yeah i hear that yeah um yeah, so people are saying things about Target in chat now. It's so funny. Um, but yeah, I it's been it's been refreshing to see that. I've also heard that Target specifically and this is not sponsored by Target if anyone's wondering. Um, <laughs> but I've I've heard that they they're actually planning to have this Pride stuff that they're doing be part of Pride every day and they're going to have like binders and other things they can't technically call them binders i think they're like compression tank tops or something yeah, available something. at target like 24 7 365 yeah. which is great news especially for like trans youth in texas and florida who exactly. you know aren't old enough to go to some of the 18 plus stores where usually is where you had to go to get a binder um exactly. you can't order online because they don't have a credit card because they're right. teens but they can go to target yep <laughs> like it's a big it's a big win for it is a huge win yeah so that's some good news i guess with everything happening summer 2020 is target's got wonders for you yeah (laughs) hey you know i'll take i'll take the wins where i can get them yeah totally um so this username is a lot of words put together um romy rune julesiet says hello spencer fellow jd here i reconsidered practicing law in 2020 to do anti-racist work and i heard a human rights expert ponder that because our legal system is so rooted in cis heteropatriarchal white supremacy that we would have to step outside of maybe look to indigenous traditions to undo the harms do you have any opinions on this regarding whether the legal system can undo the harms of the gender binary as codified in law uh, that is something that I would not be um, uh, I would not anticipate that the legal system is ever going to do that um, at least not in this country uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that one is as you know uh, law is still a very conservative place mm-hmm. and um, increasingly now because of the way that the courts have been stacked uh, it's going to continue to be a very conservative place for at least the next probably 50 years. Mm-hmm. So that's a problem in and of itself. Uh, depending on what happens in the elections in the fall, uh, we may or may not have a democracy after uh, November. So there's that. Um, so register to vote, everyone. 
register to vote and then actually vote and then actually vote and then actually vote take the day Um, off now if you have to hopefully your bosses will be kinder than that or you can mail in your ballot yeah schedule it now plan for it now thankfully i live in a state that is all mail-in ballots so yeah um but uh I don't see the legal system as being the way to undo much of anything. I think how we manage to to dismantle systems is unfortunately largely through the business world because what matters in this country, bottom line is the dollar. And if you can convince companies of the value of dismantling certain systems that have historically been in their favor and say, you know, if, if, if you change this, it actually might be better for you. If you can convince them of that, eventually they will make those changes. I mean, certainly we've seen that uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, companies clamoring to be part of the HRC you know, get a, a score of 100 on their employment um, uh, chart. Uh, you see companies actively seeking out LGBTQ consumers. You see companies now more actively seeking out BIPOC folks as consumers um, and being more vocal about the fact that um, they want to do what's right. Mm-hmm. Now, is that 100% foolproof? No, because certainly we have these companies that are still also giving money to right-wing politicians that are enacting laws that are antithetical to those stated goals. Um, and, and that's where I think we have to hold their feet to the fire and say, listen, you've implemented this policy around diversity, equity, and inclusion. You've done these things to... Uh, improve your messaging to various communities that you want to access as consumers. And yet you're, you're voting over here. Mm -hmm. So we, as then the consumers are going to have to hold your feet to the fire and say, well, I'm going to go to this other store that actually is supporting candidates that support the ideals that you've got in your mission statement. And that it's a much slower process. Mm-hmm. But in my mind, ultimately, it's a more successful process because the more integrated things become, the better off we all are. Um, uh, Spencer, before I get rolling with any further questions, is there anything you wanted to make sure that we talked about on the topics that we were just discussing? Is there anything that we... I think we covered it all. I think, you know, the main thing is, is regardless of where you live, stay informed and get involved in whatever way you can. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, at this point, um, people really are fighting for their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know for me, I am a disabled person. I have a lot of chronic pain. And so especially like when the Black Lives Matter protests were going on a couple years back in full force, right at the start of the pandemic. Um, You know, I didn't have the spoons, 
to put it in the disability language, to like go and be a physical body at a protest. Um, but like my wife and I put together a med kit cart and gave it to a friend who was going to the protests and like yeah. would be someone to call if someone needed help or whatever. Um, it's, it's important to find some way to participate, even if it's not the big public thing. Yeah, you know, and the the reality is not everybody is able uh, or ready to be out. Mm -hmm. So that, but that doesn't mean that you can't do things quietly to help. Okay. Um, you know, and like you say, you know, we all we all have circumstances in our life that make certain things possible and available to us, and certain things not. Um, you know, my calculations about the risks I'm willing to take have changed over time, partly because of age, partly because of, of my own physical limitations and partly because I'm a parent. Um, and, and now also partly because I'm the primary caregiver for my elderly mother. So, you know, my, the factors in my risk assessment have shifted from mm. when I was in my twenties and thirties. Yeah. Um, so how, how, how do you, or how would you suggest taking care of mental health while staying engaged? It's so tempting to just like be an emu and put your head in the stand and like ignore it. <laughs> and yeah. like, cause it's overwhelming. It's a lot, especially like for me as someone with ADHD, it's like, I, it's hard to tell what's important and what's not. And so then I, it's, it's everything or nothing. It's very black and yeah. white thinking, which isn't helpful. No. Like, and so you know, do you have any suggestions for how to get out of those type of loops and get into um, some level of activism work that is still sustainable for folks? Well, I think one of the things that is useful for folks is particularly if you're getting a lot of your information via online sources. For example, if you're following a bunch of people on Twitter uh, that are all talking about the same stuff, basically. Pick one or two people that you really resonate with, that you feel provide a pretty grounded approach to what's happening in the world mm -hmm. and follow them. You don't need to follow a hundred people that are all going to be, you know, basically yelling at the top of their lungs about the horrible things that are happening. Mm -hmm. um, they're horrible whether one person says it or a hundred people say it. So mm -hmm. um, you don't need to inundate yourself with it. So finding ways to limit the influx of information, I think is one way to help. Um, another strategy that I know a lot of people use is just to take a break every once in a while. You know, um, I personally uh, don't employ that uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is I am often reminded of my, my friends who do work within BIPOC communities who remind me that they don't ever get a break. Mm -hmm. Right? The world exists for them the way it exists for them all the time. Yeah. So why should I allow myself a break? 
if they don't get a break, I don't get a break. Mm-hmm. Um, the struggles are different, unique. You know, we, we all have the intersections that we have, but you can't ever turn off the thing it, that is being sought to be oppressed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my child is autistic and is very impacted by her autism. And so, uh, you know, I don't, the, the, um, the disability filter in our house never goes off. It's always on. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I look the way that I look and people make a lot of assumptions about who I am based on the way that I present in the world, the reality is that once you scratch the surface, I'm a queer trans man. And you don't have to scratch that far. Mm-hmm. It's literally so, your pins tweet, I'm a trans man. <laughs> hey, um, you know, uh, but even just out in the world. Yeah. You know, if I get into a car accident and I need to get taken to the ER, it's going to be in abundantly clear the minute the EMTs show up. Mm-hmm. So I, I think while there is a sometimes a desire to be able to turn it all off um, because it feels better for our mental and emotional health, um, uh, for me, that's not that's not a choice I'm willing to make. Yeah, that's not a way that I'm willing to use the privilege that I have. Yeah. Um, but what I can do is take breaks mm-hmm. for short periods of time. So I might take a weekend where I just only log in to Twitter for half an hour, mm-hmm. and I hold myself to that. Because honestly, in that half hour, I can find out pretty much what I need to know mm-hmm. about what's happening in the world. Yeah. Um, making sure that you have a network of people that you can talk to. If you have access to a therapist, great. If you don't, don't use your friends as your therapist, but use your friends as a support system. You know, and certainly the pandemic has made that uh, more challenging for folks, um, especially, you know, when you're not being able to gather together in person. But there are ways to find community online. And I think a lot of us have done that. I, you know, almost two years ago now, I started a biweekly Zoom call for trans leathermen. and we've been having that call every two weeks for almost two years. That's so awesome. Um, and it's now it's a, you know, it's a bunch of guys, some from Australia, some from Europe, some from North America, um, who have developed a really tight bond with one another. Um, some of us knew each other in, in real life, uh, and but a lot of us didn't. So it's been really gratifying just to have that outlet for folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and the conversations get, you know, serious and sometimes they're completely silly and superficial. Yeah. Um, 
but those but consistent they're, affinity groups are really powerful though yeah you know um, and uh you know i think particularly if you're somebody who is in a leadership role or a visible role in terms of activism it's so important to have like a core group of people in your life that you can vent to yeah. and who will also call you on your on your bs um, you know, you have to have those people in your life that are willing to pull you aside and say, you know what, you're being unreasonable here. Mm-hmm. Um, or perhaps you could approach it this other way. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also need to be able absolutely to have a safe space where you can vent all the things that you need to vent and know that it won't go anywhere. Yeah. And beyond that, you know, we all need to do the things that we need to do to try to keep ourselves sane, try to, you know, eat good food, enjoy the food that you eat. Um, you know, I'm not, don't live some sort of ascetic life where you're not enjoying what you have offered to you. Things should taste good. Um, you know, <laughs> go outside, breathe the air, go for a walk if you can, or do something to exercise in some way, uh, get out in the world somehow mm-hmm. um you know uh, those things are are things that help restore your sanity yeah it's i love i love these tools for resilience yeah you know and I, here's the thing like trans people and queer people have been around since time immemorial mm-hmm. um and they keep trying to break us they keep trying to get rid of us and they haven't yet so that tells me a lot more about our resilience uh than it does anything about them yeah i love that um let's see so how do you continue to stay motivated to do your trans advocacy work like i heard you say a minute ago you know bipoc people don't get a break so why should i but are there other pieces that help help keep you motivated or um you know are there wins or positive outcomes that you've had that that make you feel like all this work is actually going somewhere or you know is doing oh, something for sure i mean if if i wasn't getting results somehow some way uh it would be pretty demoralizing i think mm-hmm. um but you know over time certainly there have been some really good wins um we had a a situation in Washington State, probably, oh gosh, probably almost 20 years ago now, where, uh, so the Department of Licensing, when I transitioned, there was a lovely woman who worked at the Department of Licensing in Olympia, who was the processor of all gender marker change requests. And so you would address a letter directly to her, you'd ask her for what you wanted, and then she'd send you back an official notice to take to the local licensing office to change your stuff, which had worked great for a long time. And then there was a new person appointed to be the head of the DOL who was not particularly trans-friendly person, Mm -hmm. then created all these additional hoops and unnecessary requirements. And so I, along with a couple of other folks, um, did some advocacy work directly with the governor 
around how to shape DOL policy to make it more functional and easier for folks to access. And that was very successful and we were able to get uh, the changes that we wanted. While we were in the process of that, the Department of Vital Statistics heard about what we were doing. And so they contacted us and said, hey, we wanna make this super easy for people to change their gender marker on their birth certificate. Um, would this be a policy that you guys can agree with? And we said, yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Um, that policy then became essentially the policy that was adopted by Secretary Clinton when she was Secretary of State for how U.S. passports deal with gender marker changes. Mm -hmm. That came directly from Washington State, directly from advocacy work that I did. That's amazing. And, you know, I'm going to take that as a big win. That is a huge win. So if I finally get around to updating my passport to have the X on it, it's all your fault. Indeed. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, did, did you have anything to do with the, um, the like gender neutral bathroom stuff in Seattle? Um, no, actually I didn't have anything to do with that. Okay. Um, but I'm, you know, it's a, it's a, that's a huge win here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, I, and I'll tell you the whole thing about gender neutral bathrooms for me is not even just about trans rights yeah. um, at all. It's about uh, disability rights. Mm -hmm. um, as the parent of an autistic child who is female, when she was little, it was pretty easy. I would just take her into the men's room with me. She's 17. She's taller than me. Mm -hmm. I can't bring her into the men's room with me anymore. And certainly this mm -hmm. <laughs> image going into the women's room is not a particularly welcome thing. But mm -hmm. when there are gender neutral bathrooms, I can make sure that she is accessing bathrooms safely, um, which is not even necessarily about um, anybody bothering her. It's just about hygiene and clean, cleanliness of the space. You know, it's like, I want to make sure that she's going into a stall where there isn't urine all over the seat. Yeah. Um, or that she's not touching a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, which she, she has a tendency to do, um, you know, and making sure that she washes her hands before she comes back out. And I'm certainly not going to ask some stranger to be responsible for her. Yeah. Um, th that's asking too much of people. Yeah. Um, so gender neutral bathrooms to me are um, a saving grace. Um, mm -hmm. And it's meant that it's more possible for me to take her to more things and more outings because I don't have to worry about what am I going to do with her while I need to go to use the restroom. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, there's only so much safety I feel about saying to her, stand right here. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that's about knowing what the statistics are for women being sexually assaulted in this country mm -hmm. and then that number is exponentially higher when it comes to um, girls and women with disabilities mm -hmm. <laughs> the stress of taking her places yeah without gender neutral bathrooms is is huge so for me 
having gender neutral bathrooms is is not only better, I think, for everybody, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly for me as a parent of a disabled child, mm-hmm. it's critical. Yeah. Uh, Trans Capybara asks, have you worked with Gender Justice League in Seattle on advocacy work? I have, indeed. Um, and um, of late, I haven't really done a whole lot of advocacy work directly with any organization. Mostly I'm doing my consulting work, and so I'm working uh, directly with clients on DEI work, mm-hmm. whether that's um, implementing trainings for employees or whether that's working to overhaul their uh, their employee manuals um, or whether it's, you know, helping them create a transition process um, within the workplace. So um, my work right now is much more directly with customers, mm-hmm. uh, in this case, mostly corporations and nonprofit organizations, um, than it is with bigger policy pieces. That's still important and cool because trans people need jobs too. <laughs> yeah, it's you know it's it's hard to do the advocacy work when you when you can't make enough money to put food on the table. Yeah. Um, let's see. Kari's asking in the chat: Are birth certificates 100% the domain of the state born in? I'm adopted through the state of Florida. To further complicate my issue, my certificate is heavily redacted. I'm not allowed to access the original certificate. If I moved, would there be an option for me in another state? Unfortunately not. Birth certificates are governed by the state in which you were born mm-hmm. um, or in which the original birth certificate was issued. So you're kind of stuck with whatever their policies happen to be. And unfortunately, right now, Florida is abysmal on many counts. Yeah. Um, also, as an adoptee, you run into further complications there. And, um, you know, unfortunately that's, that's a whole another area of advocacy work that is, is happening out in the world that needs to happen, um, in terms of, of adoptees having rights to manage the legal documentation related to who they are. Um, so unfortunately, you're kind of stuck with whatever Florida wants. Now, the good news is, do you need your birth certificate for much of anything? No, you don't. So if you move from state to state, typically you can change your driver's license based on you bring in your license from where you lived before you go in, you go through the new state's process and they issue you a new driver's license. If you get your passport done, you might need the birth certificate just for purposes of showing that you are who you say you are, and in which case you would submit that along with copies of any name change orders. Mm-hmm. And if you have not had previously a, a, um, a passport, uh, or you've previously had one issued in a different gender designation, then you just get your doctor to write a letter and there's a literally a form letter available on the US Passport Office's website that gives you the exact language that needs to be used. And you just get your doctor to write that letter. You submit all of that documentation and then they'll take care of your passport for you. Awesome. Social Security has the same policy. 
in terms of, of changing documentation there that the passport office does. Thankfully, they've now made those coincide with one another. They used to have two different policies, which was a nightmare for people. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, now they have the same processes. Um, that's, you know, and once you have your passport, that really ultimately is the only documentation you'll likely need for almost everything else in your life. That passport is what's going to get you frequent flyer status, global entry status. You can use that uh, to prove your identity for the purposes of getting a state ID or a driver's license. Um, You know, if anybody wants proof of citizenship, that's your ticket to that. Uh, in a lot of ways, your passport is more meaningful to you than your birth certificate is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, people, it looks like people are relieved in the chat to hear that they can get their passports updated. Oh yeah. It's a relatively easy process. Yeah. I, I have a mixture of letters on my gender markers. Um, my birth certificate and my driver's license have been updated but I still have to circle back because I got I got my name changed on my passport before all of the gender marker stuff got updated. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, I just did that like three years ago and I got to do it again. Um, yeah. But it, it's okay. We'll get there. What I really wish, Spencer, is that insurance companies would have an X marker on medical documents for health insurance. That'd that's, be nice. That's the big fight I would like to see one because, oh my gosh, it's stressful to go see a doctor at all and then to have people misgender me all over the place like individual offices should just have pronouns on all their paperwork and my my md my primary care physician is actually non-binary themselves and Mm -hmm. so they have like the stuff the clinic asks and then their own personal intake paperwork which is like six more pages about gender identity and stuff and i'm like see (laughs) this is the medical care that i've been wanting all along like how great this exists um, on that topic, what are some of the biggest changes in trans legal status over the years? And what are some examples of new laws or changes that you would personally like to see enacted? So maybe like, what's the progress we've made and what are you hoping for the future? So progress we've made uh, has included things as simple as legal name changes. Mm-hmm. Um, in the past, uh, you know, we've seen judges deny name changes to trans folks uh, simply because they're trans and the judge doesn't want to sign the order. Um, we have, uh, we had a case here in Washington state where a judge in Tacoma denied two trans women their name changes. He ended up being censured by the Bar Association for violating his judicial oath um, because he was acting in a discriminatory manner. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge win. Um, most bar associations and bar associations in each state govern the licensing of lawyers and judges. Mm-hmm. So um, while they're not a state agency, they function in much the same way. And so um, their policies around requiring non-discrimination on the part of members is incredibly important. We've made big strides with that. Gender marker changes are possible in uh, virtually every state in terms of driver's licenses without 
too much of a hassle. Uh, some states are a little bit harder to deal with than others. Um, but in general, you're able to make that change. And certainly within the last five years, we've seen some, some movement in terms of being able to use X as a gender marker, which is, a, when you think about it, um, you know, if I, if I look at sort of my career of trans advocacy over the last 27, 28 years, um, that's a pretty phenomenally quick amount of change legally um, compared to other civil rights issues that we've dealt with in the past. Like we've managed a lot within a relatively short period of time. Yeah. Um, gender marker changes are available on birth certificates in all but three states. Oh, wow. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, wow. When I started out, uh doing work on that issue maybe half of the states would do a gender marker change and um the other half could maybe convince a judge to sign an order Hmm. um you know we had to be pretty creative about ways that we went about getting you know the department of vital statistics in each state to be willing to do those gender marker changes. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's been a really successful movement um, within the last, say, 25 years. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the passport office, same thing with Social Security. Both of those used to require proof of surgery. Oh, God. Um, that is no longer the case. <laughs> Once um, they make those surgeries free, then that might feel mm, still yeah. bad, but slightly less yeah. bad. And there, and there so are still, and, and unfortunately, there are still states where they won't change a birth certificate without surgery. Louisiana being one of them, um, in which case, not only about surgeries. Yeah, but they require if you want your birth certificate changed you have to go get a an exam by a doctor in the parish in which you were born wow so you can imagine if you're somebody who was born in someplace in louisiana and you now live in in oregon mm-hmm. um, you've now got to fly yourself out to louisiana and go through all of the process of applying for this birth certificate change and then go see some doctor you've never met before who knows nothing about you who's going to examine you and determine whether or not you get to change your gender marker or not yeah that's terrible so while there has been tremendous uh positive change there are still a couple of places where there's work to do yeah well you um, what are what are some some future changes you'd love to see? I'd love to see every single state insurance commissioner require every medical care insurer in the state be mandated to have to provide trans affirming care mm-hmm. and cover it under their insurance policies. Yeah. Right now, that's not the case. There are some states that require it, uh, and uh, certainly folks that live in those states benefit by that. 
Um, but if you live in one of those states that doesn't require it, um, it can be hard to get medical insurance that will cover uh, treatment. And, yeah. you know, insurance companies are always going to look for a way to not pay for something. Right. So if they have an exclusion for trans-related care. If you go in for a broken arm and they somehow say that that's related to the fact that you're uh, taking testosterone and so that has diminished your bone density over time and so therefore it's trans-related care, we're not going to cover it. Now you're having to fight with the insurance company uh, for coverage. So, are there lawyers for fighting insurance companies about this silliness? There are. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, sometimes that ends up being more expensive than just paying for the medical care, uh-huh. unfortunately. Yeah. And insurance companies know that. Yeah. You know, and the, people often talk about, you know, well, you know, I would just go ahead and sue somebody. Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, there's there's a whole calculation that I always encourage my clients to look at in terms of a particular issue that they would come in with. One is, are you suing because of the principle of the thing? Um, and so the outcome doesn't necessarily matter. You, you just want to fight on the principle of it. If you have a certain outcome in mind, what happens if you don't get that outcome? Mm -hmm. Also, how prepared are you to stay in this litigation for the next year to two or longer? Mm -hmm. Are you gonna be able to take time off of work? How, if it's something that's traumatic to you, how willing are you to continue to relive that trauma over and over again? Because you will be questioned about it over and over again. Mm Do you have the financial and uh, supportive resources that you need to get you through the next year or two litigating this thing? Mm -hmm. Um, And if the answer comes back to any of those that, no, you don't really have the wherewithal to do it, chances are it's not worth it to sue. The one time that ever came up in my life, I was in a car accident that I wasn't at fault, but someone else was driving my car. But because it was in California instead of the state that I live in, the laws are different. But my lawyer was in the state I was in. So they thought, oh, yeah, we definitely have a case we can, you know, press for this. And then we realized, like, no, like, they don't have any assets. And because of the state it was in, it benefits not you. It's like, heck. (laughs) Yeah. Well, <laughs> and honestly, I feel bad for the lawyer. He put all this work in and didn't get paid at all because he yeah. was like, he gets paid when he wins. So right. it was a, that was a time. Yeah. And I mean, that's the other, that's the other factor too, is if you're suing somebody and you're hoping to get money out of it, do they have the, do they actually have any money to pay you? with? Yeah. Well, and insurance companies do, but they also, do. they also have the pockets to defend their money. They do. And they will. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I'll make this my last call to the chat. If you have any other questions you want to ask, I have two or three left to ask myself. Um, Spencer, is there anything that we missed about trans law and trans politics that you'd like to make sure that you say? Um, not really. I mean, like I said before, and I'll repeat it again, please stay aware of what's happening. Um, encourage your friends to stay aware 
if you have good relationships with cisgender people in your life, um, or you are in fact cisgender, please talk to other cisgender people um, about the importance of combating all of this anti-trans legislation that's floating around right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been making friends with all my neighbors. We just moved and bought a house for the first time and uh, we're the only trans people on the block. So we've, we had a housewarming party and invited all the neighbors over so they could eat our delicious food and realize trans people are good at cooking too. <laughs> you know, build a rapport. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, Kari has a question in the chat. Um, Kari and Aiden are neutral names. What order should I change in? Uh, that is, go ahead and change the name before I attempt to change the marker or do both at the same time. Um, so it depends on the state that you live in. Florida. Florida. Mm-hmm. So in Florida, I would go do the name change first and then deal with the gender marker change. Um, so you go to the courthouse to get the name change done and you'll get certified copies. I typically recommend that people get at least 10 certified copies of their name change order because you never know who's going to want a certified copy. Mm -hmm. Certainly the state will in terms of changing your driver's license. Once you have that name change order, just check on what the process is for changing gender marker on your license. And then when you go into the Department of Licensing or DMV, Um, they should be able to change both of those at the same time then, as long as you bring in all of the appropriate documentation. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And never take no for an answer. That's right. Be a Karen, ask for a supervisor. (laughs) Or a Kari in this case. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Um, All right. Uh, Spencer, can you share a moment of gender euphoria with us? Like a time that you were like, yeah, really feeling it. Uh, Let's see. What's a good time that I can think of? (laughs) It's been so long. Uh, That's fair. um, You definitely have the best beard of any guest that's ever been on the show. Well, thank you. Uh, (laughs) I think probably the the um, the earliest memory that I have around gender euphoria was probably I don't know I was maybe six months on T and it was right before I had chest surgery and my then partner and I had gone on vacation to Hawaii and I had been incredibly concerned about how I was going to maneuver around swimwear. Mm-hmm. Um, the choices were, you know, far more limited in 1995 than they are today. So I ended up opting for a, uh, and like many transmasculine people, I was blessed with really big boobs. Um, seems to be one of those. Um, Hashtag blessed. <laughs> <laughs> one of those uh, tricks of nature that is played yeah. upon all too often. Same trick. It was weird. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, <why? laughs> I don't enjoy these. <laughs> why did I get no, such a I don't want to be this big. 
Um, huh. so I ended up opting for like a really, like a one size smaller speedo racing suit, um, women's racing suit, and then swim trunks and a t-shirt over that. Thankfully being, um, Swedish and very pale, uh, I have to wear a lot of sunscreen and or clothing to keep from getting overly fried. So mm-hmm. I could at least, you know, I felt okay about wearing a t-shirt over um, and you know, I, I had a lot of stress before we got there. And by the time I was six months on tea, I actually already had a pretty decent mustache at that point. Yes. Um, did you just start with injections? You didn't do any gel? No, yeah. just inject- That's why. My doctor, my doctor <laughs> was He's like, I'm going to put you on a really good dose so you get changes quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's my my doc at the time. She's pretty amazing. That's um, rad. Uh, but I I remember like there wasn't a single person on that trip that misgendered me, regardless of what I was wearing, regardless of the fact that I was taking off one wet t shirt to put on a dry t shirt out by the pool. Like it didn't register for people which I thought was really interesting. Um, there's a um, there's an invisibility that comes with being seen as normatively male. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's an interesting anonymity that comes with that that was really refreshing. Um, and so I was able to enjoy that trip in a way that I, had anticipated I was not going to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, we had one more clarifying question from Kari in the chat. When changing a name and getting that court-ordered name change, do does will she have to say why she's changing it? Um, it depends. Uh, here, at least, um, when we do name change orders, um, uh, you know, we I've worked a lot with the judges here. I've done presentations now, I think, for three different judicial conferences. And so um, judges here are pretty used to seeing trans folks coming in. And so, um, you know, we might have somebody put in their petition that the reason that they're changing their name is related to a gender transition. Um, and then when the judges call you up to ask you about it, uh, they'll simply say, and you're changing the name for the reason stated in your petition. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Um, they don't out anybody. Um, they do a really good job um, yeah. of being very respectful of people. Um, I would ask other folks um, in your area that have gone through the court system where you are to find yeah. out what they ended up putting in their paperwork. It'll vary from place to place, um, unfortunately. Yeah. And sometimes getting local information uh, is the best course of action. Yeah. Are there, so Kari's in Florida. So are there like other things that you could put instead of trans um, that you a bigoted judge in Florida might be more likely to approve of? I don't know. You can simply say I'm changing my name because this is a name that I prefer. Mm-hmm. 
Um, this is a name that I have been using as an alias for X period of time, and that's how people know me. Mm-hmm. So I'd like my legal name to reflect the name that people know me by. Yeah. Um, that's a way of doing it without saying anything about trans or non-binary identity. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's very helpful. Sometimes, sometimes when you don't have overt power, you need the big trickster energy. Absolutely. <laughs> to get the job done. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and, and one of the things that, that I will say is that be persistent. You know, I think one of the, the challenges that sometimes happens for folks is that when they're met with a bureaucrat who is trying to tell them, no, we can't do that, or no, you need to jump through this additional hoop. Um, if you are feeling... Uh, scared or insecure about your ability to do something, um, it can be even more challenging. So go in armed with as much information as you possibly can about what the process is in that particular bureaucracy and what that particular process is so that when, if and when you deal with some clerk who doesn't really know what the rules are, you can say, well, no, in this this is where it says that I can do this mm-hmm. and never be afraid to ask for a supervisor. I love that. Always ask for the supervisor. Always ask for a supervisor. <laughs> That's so fun. Um, Take wow. a support person with you. Yeah. 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 That's also really helpful. Um, particularly I think for folks who have, um, uh, either difficulty asserting themselves or who have um, anxiety or have some other kind of processing um, uh, difficulty, having somebody else there who can be your support person, but also kind of step in and help advocate if needed is incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I call that being tilted. Like if you're kind of tilted because you're having a hard time regulating yourself because it's important and so it, you can get flustered because it is important. Having that in-person ally is so helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, that's actually my wife's first job ever. When we very first met was I had just gone through this traumatic experience at work and I wanted an emotional support mammal and so she was very interested in being around me constantly because, you know, she was swiftly falling in love with me and I was all like freaking out about <laughs> my life. And so I asked her if she'd be my emotional support mammal. And she said, yes, it's, very, it's, it's a very good job. And I am the luckiest. It's true. <laughs> um, duh. All right. Is there anything that you would like to make sure that folks know about your perspective on gender and gender diverse issues? Nope, not really. But what I am going to do, because uh, I don't have anything to pimp for myself, but I am going to pimp a book from a friend of mine. Cool. So this is Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Trans Bodies um, by Paisley Cura. Paisley is a professor at, uh, what the heck university is he at? He's a professor of political science and women and gender studies at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center in the University of New York City, University of New York. 
Um, Paisley is an amazing advocate. Um, I've known him for, gosh, probably 24 years, something like that. Um, he and I and a couple of other colleagues uh, whose names you might know, Shannon Minter and Kyler Broadus amongst them, um, together uh, we formed the Transgender Law and Policy Institute uh, something like 20 years ago um, as a website where we could um, collate all of the various cases law journal articles, opinion pieces, statutes, uh, et cetera, in one place um, so that it's easy to access that. Paisley very generously agreed to basically be the webmaster of that website. Um, which is on all webmasters everywhere. Your job is the, hard and you it are- It is a hard job. And, very you know, appreciated. And he's been doing it while he's been teaching. Um, oh my gosh. Not- <laughs> <laughs> big commitment. Um, but anyway, the book is a great way to know more about what's happening politically and legally as it relates to trans and non-binary bodies in this country. That's awesome. Do you know if there's an audiobook version? I think there is. Um, I mean, you can order it on Amazon. Uh, but I will... I'll, I will check in and find out if there's an an audio version of it. And um, I see hardcover and ebook, but I don't see audiobook. Well, I will find out. And if there isn't, you know, if there's an audiobook read by a trans guy, and I just get to listen to a beautiful T voice the whole time I'm, you know, driving around learning about stuff, like what better book could there possibly be? I don't know. Indeed. Well, perhaps I will pitch my services to Paisley. We'll we'll get that, make it happen. Do you do voice acting on top of everything else, Spencer? No, I'd love to. That's actually something I would really love to do. That's so awesome. Well, in that case, I'll tell a game dev friend that I've been making that if if they need a transmit voice actor, you're available. Please do. (laughs) That's so awesome. I love that. Um, Okay, well, friends, there are so many, so many wonderful resources and knowledge that Spencer has shared today. Um, let's see. I'm going to try to. I'm going to attempt. I'm going to attempt to show this information for everyone here. Um, so here's what Spencer's link tree looks like. Oops, too big. I hacked it all up. There we go. Um, we've got Authentic Lives Consulting. So if you would like, if you work for a corporation um, or a nonprofit and would like to hire Spencer, um, there's the consulting link. Um, on his link tree, we've also got LinkedIn, Twitter, Cash App, Venmo, and PayPal. If you'd like to send Spencer a tip in gratitude for all of his knowledge and expertise today, there's all those links right there in the link tree. Um, and let's see, coming up, I'll tell you all very briefly about the Pride schedule for uh, Genderful. Um, so next week, we've got Andy Rogeny, who is a queer illustrated children's book like illustrator. And um, Andy and I will be talking about that. Um, in two weeks, on June 20th, we will have uh, Atlas O Phoenix talking about humans being human and also what it's like making a documentary um, about life. Um, and then at the end of the month, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, we will have Kaya and Jackal from the Stealth Transmasculine podcast to talk about 
uh, trans mask elders and aging. Um, in the meantime, thank you so much, uh, Spencer, for being here. Is there anything else you want to make sure we mentioned while we're while we're on stream today? Well, nothing I can think of, but thank you for having me. It's been great. Yeah, and thank you everybody for your great questions. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you, audience, for being respectful and having good questions and engaging us on this subject matter. Um, Jennifer would like to thank our guests for being on this podcast. Feel free to join us live on Twitch on Mondays. Check out the replays on YouTube on Fridays. And keep an eye on your favorite podcasting platforms for edited audio-only versions. As Never Kitty says, trans rights are human rights. That's right.